Hello, and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast, your source for interviews with people from all across the tropical fish keeping hobby. I'm your host, Randy Reed. Please subscribe and check out all previous episodes on Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, or AquarisPodcast.com. You can also check out additional content by following the Aquarius Podcast Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts. If you like what you hear, please rate and leave a review for the show. Enjoy the interview. Today's date is Friday, June 15th, 2018. My guest today is Corey McElroy. Corey is the owner of Aquarium Co-op, the wildly popular tropical fish store in Edmonds, Washington. Corey has years of experience in our hobby, keeping everything from live bears, quarries, monster fish, and freshwater puffers like the Mabu. Corey has given numerous fish talks across the country on topics like opening and running a retail fish store, fancy guppies, and a thorough examination of freshwater puffers. He also has a popular YouTube channel with over 167,000 subscribers. For perspective, that's more than the population of Pasadena, California. So, Corey, welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. Well, thank you. I didn't even know that fact that I'm bigger than Pasadena, California. Yeah, so I, obviously I had to look that up. That's just not one of the uh, the fun facts that's floating on the top of my head. Uh, but going through the list of, of cities that had roughly that population not many of them were very well known. I almost went with Tempe, Arizona, but I mm-hmm. felt like something about, was it the little lady from Pasadena? Yeah, yeah. There you go. So I, I've I, got my own little fun fact, because we discovered this like two months ago. Uh, my YouTube channel is bigger than the AFI channel, the band. <laughs> I don't know. How, I was like, I was listening to a song one day. And I'm like, how, in what realm is a nobody like me bigger than the band AFI? The, like, they've the, been on TV a billion times, toured, but... The weird or the world's a weird place. It's the power of the tropical fish hobby. I guess it, it's it's more powerful than the forest. We should never we should never underestimate it. Corey. Yeah, I don't I don't get it, but I'm a, I'm gonna ride the wave if I can. There you go. All right, so uh, to get this thing kicked off, Corey, what I'm what I'm basically calling kind of my you know origins section of the uh, episode. So how did you get started in the hobby? What are your origins? So it would have been probably 12, 13 years ago now. So a lot of people think I've been doing it my whole life. I haven't. I was, well, if it was 13 years, that puts me at 22 years old. I was working for a company called Lincare, which was an oxygen delivery service. So if you went into the hospital and had pneumonia or something, you got discharged and needed oxygen, I would show up at your house and show you how to use it and oxygen concentrators and all that kind of stuff. And so being in the medical field, it led to tons of overtime because, you know, people get discharged in the middle of the night, all that kind of stuff, you're on call, and uh, led to some excess money. And I had a buddy who I used to game a lot, and we'd kind of like burnt out on World of Warcraft, I think at that point, or we were burnt out slash the wives or fiancés maybe didn't want us to play anymore because it was consuming our life, but... Uh, he had a 72-gallon bowfront aquarium there. It was planted, tons of different tetras, and I had been eyeing it and going, oh, it's so cool for weeks. And then one day I asked him how much work, and he said, there's no work at all. And what I didn't know at the time was he had like a really good balance between plants and the fish, and so he was almost doing no water changes at all. And that's now that's kind of my philosophy. I try to get to that as much as I can because um, when I was really young, my aunt – had a 10-gallon tank with, like, three carnival goldfish that was always pea soup green and that kind of stuff. And that was kind of my thoughts on an aquarium until I saw, you know, this stark contrast to that. And I assumed it had to be a ton of work. But he ended up taking me to my first uh, local fish store, and it was actually local here as Bridges Pets. And I spent, like, $900 and bought the biggest aquarium they had, which was a 65-gallon 
and I bought so I started off right in the fact that I got a cancer filter, a Fluval 406. I got the Python kit that connected to my sink day one. And uh, I got, at that time, extra lighting because I had the twin tube light to go on there. And uh, I remember it was, I think it's about the only time in my marriage now that my wife and I actually fought. And because I had told her for a few weeks ahead of time that I was going to get an aquarium. And she said, just make sure you don't get anything too big. Well, in her mind, 65 gallons is insanely large. In my mind, not that large. Even though it was the biggest tank they had, I had done research going, yeah, 65 gallons, kind of middle of the road. And uh, I still tease her about today. is like 65 gallons would be one of the smaller aquariums we would own. So I feel like the first fight with the spouse over the fish tanks is usually the worst. Yeah. And then after that, once you, I don't want to say you win, but once, once you progress beyond that, I think they just kind of hands off the wheel mm-hmm. and they just kind of try to go out of sight, out of mind as much as possible. The ultimate no-no, which I, I know this now, but I know at the time was don't put it in the bedroom. That's where I made the big mistake. Like it could have gone anywhere else except for the bedroom. And I thought like, well, I want to watch it all the time. It's going to be amazing. And uh, without consulting her, putting it in the bedroom, that was the sticking point. Not so much how big or the money, like the money was irrelevant because I, you know, I worked a ton and I had obviously earned it. But yeah, don't install a big thing in the bedroom without consulting your spouse. So it was this sheer presence because you had a canister filter, so it's not like it was noisy. Yeah, it was it was quiet. I mean, there was, you know, kind of a decent amount of light, but she came home from work and we were like installing and she just it was not a good time and uh same house or same duplex we were renting at the time. You know, I got more and more into it as I joined my local club and we ended up putting for anyone that's been around for a while, AH supply lights which were power compacts and they had the German uh, technology bent reflectors. And so it was an insane amount of light. So I was running two 96 watt power compacts over the 65 and it lit up the entire bedroom from outside. Even with the, the blinds closed, there was like, you know, it was like an alien movie, you know, where the lights usually coming in, except that was coming out. And my neighbors had to assume we were growing weed or something. <laughs> Cause it was, it was nutty, but it was super awesome. And obviously hindsight being 2020, like look where it's led now. Like it's obviously my career and all that kind of stuff. So what did you have in that tank? That tank, the first fish we ever got, I got uh, six pencil or, or hockey stick tetras or uh, whatever you want to call them because they didn't have anything cooler and I had to get fish because I was super pumped to get fish. And then that's what started my first passion, which is breeding fish. It's still my passion. I don't get to do much of it anymore, but um, black mollies. That's what went crazy in there. And I remember the, the first day I saw babies because I woke up there they were called the wife over super cool. And then that's what made me start breeding African cichlids and all that kind of stuff. And it was mostly just a planted tank. We had some clown loaches. It, it got the menagerie, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, when you're your first tank, you want to go back to the pet store four times a day, you know, and you at least got it. Well, it's been a week. I'm going to go buy fish this weekend. You would do that every weekend. And so it had, I remember I had like a big jurapari in there. I had, uh, mollies. I had lots of tetras. I had clown loaches. Um, a ghost knife, like a baby whale, like one of everything. I mean, not one, but like there was a lot of stuff in there, but there was tons of plants. And because I had so much light at that time, I had waterless growing across the top and the roots were like a foot long. And so I always called it the upside down forest. And it's still one of the tanks I want to recreate to this day. Maybe not the fish selection, but the upside down forest of those roots because the fish would swim through it. And it looks super cool. So yeah, I've got that going on with my little Spec Three. I mean, nowhere close to a sixty-five gallon, but yeah. uh, the water lettuce, the the Beta, um, which actually you got me saying Beta. I used to say Beta, 
right? But mm-hmm. I've now I've now changed it to beta. It does seem to make more sense having the two T's in the word. Yep. So nonetheless, I digress. Uh, Walter the beta loves to swim through that stuff, and it really does create a mm-hmm. pretty cool effect, even in a tank that small, or especially in a tank that small, I should say. Um, so what were some of the what were some of the lessons that you learned with this 65 gallon? Because obviously you didn't just start with all of this knowledge from right. day one, right? Yeah. Like what were some of the hard knocks that you went through with this tank? Yeah. So I was thinking about that as I was talking about earlier and I was like, well, you know, maybe I won't mention that, but now that I'm asked, I got to mention it. Uh, I learned very early on, if you don't put a sponge on the intake of a power head, it sucks up clown loaches, you know, cause clown loaches love caves. And there was like, I had the power sweep by Zoomed, the one that, you know, will move as it, as it, uh, has power. And then it breaks 10 minutes later. Like they're notorious for like getting stuck. Um, but I didn't have a sponge on the intake cause I didn't really know. And, uh, so it sucked up a clown loach and that was like devastating cause the clown loaches, even from early on were one of my absolute favorite. And so then I got a sponge on the intake and I realized it was kind of polishing the water. So that was a good lesson to learn. Um, I think overall long term on that tank, I learned you don't need an insane amount of light. Sometimes way more light is worse. Um, and I definitely learned in the summer that all that extra light and stuff added a ton of heat to the room, you know, which actually translated well building fish rooms and that kind of stuff. Like, oh yeah, if you have a ton of lighting, that counts as heat for the entire room as opposed to just using heaters and that kind of stuff. And so I'm trying to think of other, I mean, I definitely learned lessons where I don't remember the gravel I started out with, but I know at one point I replaced it with Home Depot sand because that's, you know, the internet you got to do that, right? Like sand's so much better. And I know I tried mixing it at one time and that and was cheaper. terrible. Yeah, it was cheap. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do that. It's going to look awesome. And, uh, but it didn't grow plants nearly as well. And I'm trying to think of, I know I definitely went through like more filtration is better. So I ended up putting like a bio wheel on the back of that thing, even though I had the canister. Cause you know, more is better. And, uh, yeah, I, it's hard to remember all the lessons, but I usually think you learn best from, mistakes you know like oh how'd that go horribly wrong you know i want to piggyback on your intake sponge and you know maybe we'll use this as an opportunity to uh sell more intake sponges for you or whoever the heck is carrying them Mm -hmm. right now but um so on my 75 gallon i have the aqua clear 110 Mm -hmm. and i decided to run that without an intake sponge i'm like you know what i've got enough i've got enough i switched out the uh the media inside the filter itself with sponges I feel good. I think there's enough going on here, right? Yeah. And I've got a ton of plants. I don't need this extra sponge. Well, I moved two mystery snails into that tank, and lo and behold, it somehow the mystery snail got on the the intake, and the way it's designed, like his head, like the meat of his body, yeah, almost got sucked out yeah, of the his shell. Foot just got sucked into his it, yeah. foot, right? And so I saw him there, and I'm like, oh, his name is Frank, right? Like mm-hmm. my wife really likes Frank. She may not like all of my tanks, but she likes Frank. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, he's just cleaning off the algae on the intake. Cool. Well, I come back. I think I work from home that day. I come back, and he's still there in the same exact yeah. spot. And I start thinking, hmm, is he dead? And the intake is just kind of holding on to him. Mm-hmm. And so I pull him off and realize that his foot was jammed underneath yeah. that AquaClear, how those tubes come together. And I, I put him in a different tank that was not nearly as much flow, just a different setup. And he stayed in his shell for probably the next four days. I yeah. thought I was going to lose him. He's fine now. Mm-hmm. Come to find out, he's a she, and she lays eggs. Sure. So if ever there was a public service announcement from this particular episode, if you have a hang-on-back filter, get the filter sponge. Get the intake sponge. It's not even for the bacteria. Sometimes it's keeping the fins of a fish from getting sucked up or fish food. That's one of the biggest ones is 
having things like frozen bloodworms just get sucked up. When they sit in the hang on back and they rot, that is way more of a load on your aquarium than if the fish eats it. So if you have an intake sponge and the frozen bloodworm gets sucked to it, a fish will come by and eat it. But when it digests it, it comes out with all the enzymes and bacteria from its gut and will break it down much faster. And it actually, so even though it's the same bloodworm, it's less bio load as long as it goes through a fish than sitting there and rotting. Yeah. So on that point, actually, of, of intake sponges, I just picked up an FX6 for mm-hmm. my main 75-gallon tank. Yeah. Um, I had the FX5. I loved that filter, and that's when I my, my previous foray into the hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting the FX6 was natural for me. I, I, I like the flu ball canister filters. But given the shape of that intake, what would you recommend for a filter option? Just so, yeah. custom I've... cut and put inside or Mm-mm. work something... Yeah, so I love that filter, FX6 or FX5, when I was really using them as a hobbyist. The first thing I do is I take off the strainer, so that big, you know, oval-shaped strainer, and then you're left with a a tube, basically, that's slightly under one inch, so it doesn't really fit anything. Um, you get a larger intake sponge, and then you have to make what I call like a grommet or an adapter or something. But basically I use a piece of like vinyl tubing, kind of like you would buy at Home Depot or anything like that. Like if you've ever done pond work, it's just clear vinyl tubing. And I buy two very short sections and I take the tube with me and I go, okay, I need the one that will barely slide over this thing. And then I need the one that will barely slide over that. And it's like a one inch uh, piece of vinyl tubing that goes around the edge. And then you put another piece that's a little bit thicker. And then that rubber totally creates friction against a sponge and makes it not want to fall off. You can totally take it off. You need to service it. Um, you know, and in, in a pinch, I've seen people use like a zip tie to zip tie it on there, or you can put a bunch of rubber bands around it. So it's, it's friction, but the rubber bands, they let loose after like two months and the zip tie you have to cut every time. And so building that grommet like once will do it forever. And you have to do that like same on the like the Marineland uh, bio wheel hang on backs that have the square tube. You have to do the same thing. You have to build that grommet to fill in the gaps of a large intake. And, you know, I've done a video on it. So if you don't understand that description, you could Google like, oh, how do I build this thing? And it'll be, it'll show you exactly how to do it. But it's a super easy thing. You're just trying to create friction and fill the space between the round hole and either a smaller round tube or a different shape tube. Okay, that was going to be my next request, is if you hadn't already created one of those videos, uh, please do so, because that's definitely something that I want to take advantage of yeah. and that I want to do um, on this FX6, because I think that's just going to be the icing on the cake of a bad, awesome uh, canister filter. So, so what I know is it takes it from... A canister filter that I would usually service every four to six weeks. When I run an intake sponge and I service that, let's say every four weeks, usually I only service the canister once a year. Mm. So it really makes it so I don't have to get in there. And even with like, I've got a big Mabu puffer at the shop, 360 gallon tank, and I still only have to service the actual canister about once a year. Yeah. The fun so. thing about doing this show is that, uh, you know, we kind of get sidetracked from what I think the conversation is going to be, but sure. we end up having these really good nuggets of, like, hey, if you've got an FX6, I mean, maybe mm-hmm. you're already ahead of the game on this. But if not, you know, go out there and do that. Or if you're not already, not already using an intake sponge, go ahead and do that, right? And that's not even in the list of things that I was going to ask Corey. But, hey, sure. it came out. And if my audience, if you guys can benefit from it, I know I'm certainly going to benefit from it. Uh, by all means, do so. And actually, I should also stop and say that uh, we are recording live in the Mabu studios. It's true. Yeah. So I didn't even bother to mention that in the opening. I guess, uh, I've been here for an hour, hour or so chatting with, uh, Corey and Jimmy and it just, 
I guess became second nature. But yeah, this uh, this episode's being being recorded in person. Um, the audio quality is probably phenomenal because Corey and <laughs> we Jimmy hope. are absolutely yeah. <laughs> Jimmy walked away and might not even be recording right now. Let's look for the blinking red light. <laughs> but uh, hopefully the audio recording is just absolutely on point and that this is a a very special episode for everyone to listen to out there. Uh, I know it's certainly going to be a, a good one for me. So, uh, so then you, you kind of alluded to uh, then getting into breeding African cichlids. I mean, I guess at mm-hmm. a higher level, um, kind of map out what your progression in this hobby looks like. Okay. So, yeah. I started out with my 65, grabbed a 100-gallon acrylic tank, and did my first African cichlid tank. And from there, it basically spawned into a garage fish room and a duplex. And from that point, I made the decision that working a million hours a week and having money wasn't exactly awesome when I was spending all of my money on fish. And I thought that was the first time I thought like, well, what if I just went and worked at a fish store? Like I would make less money, but then I would have advantages and like, maybe it's the same. So instead of doing all this medical oxygen stuff, which was fine. And I do love the elderly. I love working with the elderly. Cause I think they're, they're, they come from a time when please and thank you is a lot more prevalent and they've got wicked cool stories and all that kind of stuff. So I'm smiling right now. And the reason I'm smiling is I grew up with my father actually running assisted living homes. Mm, yeah. And he still has a couple to this day. So yep. um, I spent my summers as a kid and pretty much every day after school at the care homes, yeah. helping out, vacuuming, doing all the silly little things that yep. a kid does in a family-owned business. So um, I, I think part of my personality actually has developed because of how close I was to all of these elderly people mm-hmm. and just, you know, being a little kid around a bunch of grandmas, right? Yeah. Um, so that, that's an interesting... I uh, just, I don't know. I love, I love working with old people or special needs kids or anything like that. Like, I don't know what makes me enjoy it so much, but, you know, delivering the oxygen and stuff, there was plenty of, like, you know, hospice care people and there was a lot of death and that kind of stuff and that wasn't exactly fun. And then there was the hobby, which I really was enjoying, and I was breeding some fish, and I wanted to take it to the next level. So I actually um, basically volunteered at my local fish store for like three months for like basically some store credit. Like I got a tank, and then I started working there full time, and I ended up running the place, worked there for about five years. And it was in the last like couple years where people were asking me like, why don't you have your own store? Like you're essentially running this whole thing. You know, like he still worked there and everything, and it wasn't, you know, I didn't do absolutely everything, but... I was definitely a major part of that store for quite a bit. And I had a local or not a local, but I had a buddy, another gaming buddy. And, uh, he was making good money in his job and he thought I should open up a fish store too. And I thought that was insane. Cause I'm at that point, I'm 28 years old essentially. And I'm like, well, I don't have the money and I don't know if I have the skills and all that. And we ended up, I told him like, let's table it for a year. And if it doesn't sound as crazy in a year, let's think about doing this. And so, you know, we tabled it and a year later it seemed to make even more sense of like, yeah, maybe we should like it, you know? So he, he fronted all the money and he's a silent partner in the business. He owns 25%. And we started building this thing. And I had another uh, dear friend who I had met through the fish store named Andy. He basically worked at a pet store growing up. He ran a fish farm he became a finished carpenter by trade, and he really wanted to see a pet store succeed here. So he ended up doing all the crazy good woodwork and stuff like that. He built the whole entire store, but all the crazy good woodwork and all that stuff you see in the store now. And he was willing to do all of that work basically as a loan. Like if I didn't make it, I didn't owe him anything. But if I did make it, I had to make payments, and he supplied some of the wood and did all the work pro bono. He charged, right? But it's like I only had to pay if we made it. So 
that's what led to the store. And from there, for about two years, I was trying to do, you know, social marketing on Facebook and just run the store. And there was, you know, no, no shortage of disasters and things to learn and all that kind of stuff. And then there was a point where I basically, we had moved. My wife had been promoted to be a manager where she was working and we moved further away from the store, which was even worse. But I remember sitting on the couch telling my wife I was going to, you know, go full time on YouTube. And she said what she always says and like, yeah, well, don't, don't do what you usually do and go way too into something. That's what I do is I tend to fixate on one thing. And I, I made the decision based on Pond Guru's videos. He was a guy that did videos on filtration and uh, would show off the fish store he worked at. And then I saw the king of DIY, Joey, doing well, and Dustin's fish tanks. And at that point, I didn't even have a YouTube account. I was the guy that would like, let's type in the king of DIY and see what the latest videos were because I haven't watched in a month or something like that. Where, where are we time-wise? Is this 2010-ish, 12? This would be, uh, so the first two years of my store. So if we're at 2018 and I've been open for six years, that's going to put it at what, 2014? Okay. Yeah, about 2014, I okay. think. Yeah, that's, when I think about my YouTube channel, yeah, I started in 2014 and, uh, you know, I started making videos and if you look at some of the oldest ones, it was like I was culturing Daphnia in my garage and I was using like a, a Transformer Ultra phone, which was horrible, right? But it's the only thing I had and it, at the time, it's like, yeah, that's what YouTube people do and I had gotten a good way to culture Daphnia inside and looking back now, it's terrible but at the time people were like man this is amazing and that kind of i ended up doing some more work um on youtube and it was you know i think i was let's say up to like 1400 or 2000 subscribers and then i ended up having to take like a six month break maybe even a little bit more because we were looking for a house because um, i couldn't i didn't really want to build more of a fish room or anything there i had some tanks in my office but i didn't have a whole lot of time and it we knew we were only staying there while we looked for a house. And so we ended up finding a house like six months later, moving in all that kind of stuff. And that's where the Mubu studios is today and all that. And so I knew I was going to have a ton of content because I was going to build a fish room. And my main goal then was not to promote the business, which seems weird, right? Cause it's like, well, you knew you were going to do that. But then my main goal became, I want to be the, the guy that documents how to build a fish room. Cause I would watch a ton of videos and see amazing things in other people's fish rooms and totally wonder how they did it. So I made an absolute ton of videos, lots of long, long videos where they're like 45 minutes or an hour of everything I did in a day so that you could see how to run airlines, how you run drain lines, how you drill aquariums, how you set up power, how you do all the things, how you evaluate, do I need more dehumidifiers, all this stuff that I hadn't really seen being done. And that built a following and it built a weird following because it was people that wanted to watch, you know, kind of a fat white guy that loves fish <laughs> yammer on for 45 to, minutes to an hour, which was a huge time commitment. You know, I didn't realize what I was doing at the time. I did know that I wanted to do long format content because everyone else was doing short videos. And I thought, well, let's try to be different. I try to be different if I can. And I was probably pleasing the YouTube algorithm without knowing it. But the people that were fans at that point were like super diehard fans. Like if you're watching me for three hours a week, like you really get to know someone as opposed to, you know, three videos that are five minutes long in a week. So when did you start to see uh, the the impacts to your business um, through YouTube. I guess yeah. how long did it take and, and 
what did that all look like? I think that happened around about 28,000 subscribers. That was the first time I went to the aquatic experience. And that's how I remember it because I had 28,000 subscribers. I was meeting people and people were coming up to me. And it was the first time where they're like, oh, my God, I love your content. And of people I didn't know, like the locals, because I still worked in the store at that time, they'd be like, oh, that was a cool video you put out last time. They'd come in instead of like leaving a comment on the on the video, they would come in and talk about it. So I had that and that was normal to me. But then it was meeting all these people that, you know, like obviously I knew people were watching, but I didn't realize they'd be so excited to like meet me because in my mind, I'm just a fish store owner, right? And people, I'd have these relationships with people that would watch my videos, but I would see them three times a week anyway. So it was like more like your buddy watching something you did and then talking to you about it. Then when the stranger, you know, would come up to you, it was totally different. And so I don't know that at that point it really made a big difference to my store. Like I'm sure... We definitely had some people like, oh, I saw on YouTube and I came in, but that didn't really, that wasn't a huge impact. And then we started selling, I think shortly after that online, we started selling some fish and that kind of stuff. And what we learned was I could list my entire inventory of fish online and it would sell out overnight because people really wanted to ship. And that was like an unmanageable situation. And I learned it made local customers very angry when most of the tanks have already sold stickers on it. And it was a terrible amount of work, a lot of emails, a lot of calls. And that's kind of, you know, so we had to dial that back. And then probably a year later, I was like, okay, I've got more employees and I think I've got a better grasp. Like we're obviously bigger. A year later, um, I was at like 50,000 or 60,000 or something like that. And I started to sell some dry goods. My goal was, I always try to do things in steps. And so it was like, Every week, I want to get another item online. So I don't remember exactly what my first item was, but I know one of my first items was Prime. I put Prime on there, and no one's buying it. And you put another item on, and still no one's buying because it's like weird to order from a place just for one thing. You don't have a variety. But eventually, I started having kind of a swath of stuff, and orders started to come in, and it would be like, sweet, we got four orders today. And now we've escalated to a point where it's kind of like 100 orders going out every single day, and there's multiple people shipping, and we have a warehouse, and... You know, every day is a new learning experience and, you know, like we shipped a package to Guam and there was customs we had to do and different things. And it's, we didn't, normally we didn't have to fill out customs forms, but because he lived on an airport base in Guam, then it had to have custom forms. And there's always stuff learning like, oh, we've shipped to Guam before. We didn't have to do that. I don't know why. And, you know, so it's an ever, ever education for everyone involved, I think. So it keeps you on your toes, not only running a retail business with an online presence, but then also juggling the demands of of a YouTube channel. Yeah, and now the weirdest part is, like, we assume, um, we assume everyone's a YouTube person, but we get plenty of people that just like find us on Google and order. So it's like we'll be like, yeah, just watch the video. Like, what are you talking about? You know, and they'll have no idea that we have like a YouTube channel. And to this day, I would say more than half of our retail customers have no idea I'm on YouTube because we don't advertise at all in the store or anything. And they're just like local people that live there. And they're like, cool, we have a cool fish store. And they have no idea of like, oh, there's 700 informational videos and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I can't remember. So when I got back into the hobby, if um, because obviously doing Google searches for local uh, fish stores in your area of where I'm going to go to pick out my selection and um, you know, sure enough, aquarium co-op pops up on Yelp and, and I wasn't looking at any YouTube videos at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just not sure if, I'm not sure if I came into the store first or I watched the YouTube first or, you know, the chicken or the egg. I'm not yeah, sure yeah, which, yeah. One, which one came first, but I think when the realization that, oh, that store does have a YouTube channel, 
and it, and it's kind of a big deal in the hobby and it's in my backyard yeah and then i you know i start this podcast and i talk to a guy like flynn and you know the, the awesome conversation with flynn i would encourage people to go in and check it out but you know he comes across the border from canada yeah. to come to your store and mm-hmm. i mean that's that's just awesome right there it's one of the so. reasons i work with flynn as much as i can because his dedication at a 14 year old is through the roof and I can always respect something like that. I'm like, wow, you're willing to drive. You're willing to do all this work. You're only 14. And he's a kid that's been doing YouTube for like two years. Like, when's the last time you met a kid that's 14 and from the age of 12 to 14 is even into the same thing? And yet he's been doing something that like takes work and he's been doing it since he was 12. Yeah, he's probably run circles around me when it comes to fish keeping. Oh, so. for sure. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if, he, if he was in our fish club, he'd be like a master breeder by now, I would imagine. Probably he's doing couple, good. Probably a couple times over. So, uh, And I think actually that, that that's a really good perspective to kind of build to the meat of what I want to talk to you about. Um, and, and that's basically going to be you know, with your experience as a retail store owner, um, as somebody that has extensive knowledge in our hobby, um, has traveled around the country, speaking at various fish clubs, you've been exposed to retail stores, uh, a variety of retail stores within our country, um, a variety of, of other fish keepers. So you have, I would like to say, probably one of the strongest senses, um, now people out there can challenge me on this, of somebody that could say, you know, if I were to ask questions about what are the regional preferences you know, mm-hmm. what are people keeping here versus what they're keeping here in our home Seattle area? Um, you know, what kind of fish do we tend to like? Uh, do we tend to dislike in these various areas? Yeah. But not just in the States, though, but on a global perspective, mm-hmm. right? Like you've done travels to China. Yeah. You've done travels to Japan. Mm-hmm. You've gone to Germany. Yep. Um, did you go anywhere else in Europe on this last trip or was it just Germany? Just Germany, really, okay. yeah. But given that, though, you know, how many other people in the hobby can say uh, that they've done those things and also have that very close retail hobby? hobbyist connection. I, I think, mm-hmm. you know, somebody listening to this would say, well, I know 10 people that have done travels all over the country collecting fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're collecting fish, but are they connected with the hobbyists though? And do they own a store? Like, <laughs> do, uh, you know, if you're a manufacturer and you attend all these giant conferences, you have a different outlook on the hobby than you do from someone, let's say even on YouTube or in the store or talking with a hobbyist. I think it's different on all those. And I think it takes a certain objective eye to really take it all in. You can go somewhere and you can have predisposed, you know, like let's say you go to China and when I went to China, I had all these things and people told me all these things that what to expect. And after being there for 10 days, I realized what everyone said. It wasn't that it wasn't true. It's that if you haven't been there, you'll never know, you know. So like in China, for instance, they tend to put lots of fish into an aquarium because space is at a premium. And they'll stock much heavier than we will. And yet their aquariums on average will be more technologically advanced and will be much clearer and just better kept than we keep fish, which seems odd when, you know, you're going, well, I keep one flower horn in a tank and they might have a flower horn and arowana, a stingray and all this stuff. But then, you know, on the average aquarium, it basically already has an apex system installed, like the aquariums that they're selling come with that and they're coming with a sump and they their filtration might be 30 times the amount of filtration where we really push canister filters here in the u.s i don't think i saw a single canister filter in use in china it was all giant sumps and things like that where the 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 surface area is way bigger and so you know there's also in china they value fish like keeping fish is good luck 
when a fish dies, it's very bad luck for your entire family. So they really have a vested interest to keep those fish alive. And you go to somewhere like Germany, and what I didn't really realize till I was there and talking to locals is everyone in Germany has to have a specialization when they have a job. So if you're going to go, hey, I'm going to be um, a guy that mows lawns, I'm a groundskeeper, you literally have to train to do that. You have to be book smart. You have to you know, go and learn under someone. And so everyone specializes in something for their work. And that translates to their hobby too. When you meet most of the hobbyists, You'd be like, oh, I only like killifish. I only like shrimp. I only like puffers. And it's, I think, from their whole work ethic and that type of thing, it naturally translates to, I don't keep one of everything. I highly specialize in one thing, or I'm really going to breed this one thing. And that's an entirely different way of keeping fish. And then you just run into weird things like, so I met fans in Germany, and they were asking where they could get... Um, like the the filter pads we have, the white filter pads of fine floss, that doesn't exist in Germany. And we always think of Germany being pretty advanced in the hobby. It literally just doesn't exist. There's no way to possibly get it, or at least in all the stores and that kind of thing. And it seems so weird that that would be missing from the hobby, but even just regional difference of like, wow, you don't have something so basic. They'll have every bio ring, they'll have sponge filters, but that product probably just doesn't sell. And uh, the other thing like with YouTube their biggest like fish YouTuber has like 2,000 subscribers. So like a German-speaking YouTuber that talks about fish is way smaller compared to the U.S. market. So that's kind of a weird thing. They haven't really embraced or, you know, like it seems weird that there's not – like their, their big claim to fame is they have a gamer German YouTuber that has like a million subscribers, which is a big claim to fame, but like they all knew him. Like they all know like that's our guy. Like that's the guy we're sending to the World Cup. Like they knew that. And so that was weird. Uh, and then in Japan, you go, and they seem to really be into planted aquariums. They, you know, they have a mono and that type of thing, and there's lots of ADA stores. And in general, the worst store I saw in Japan is the best fish store I've ever been to. Like, their fish stores are immaculate, very well kept, very thought out, super efficient on space, and... The employees really cared. And in general, when you go to Japan, like their demeanor, they're super helpful, super nice. And I think their culture, that carries over into their fish keeping too. So, you know, like, and I don't want to put stores down, but you go to an ADA store in Japan and then you go to one in the United States and like it's night and day difference. It's almost like going to an ADA store and not going to an ADA store. Like there would never be a speck of algae in an ADA store. Every tank would look like it's competing in world competition. Like it's just on another level there. And maybe it's because they've got enough hobbyists. Like, you know, in the U S we are one of the, the smallest populations that like fish. Like it's way more popular in a lot of other cultures. So maybe they've got that going on for them. And in general, like in Germany and in Japan, or I guess I could back up a little bit and say, when really cool fish come into the hobby, whether it's been bred or wild caught, they almost always go to Japan or Germany first because people are willing to pay the money there. Where in America, we buy stuff, but we buy stuff at a fraction of the cost. You know, it's like, oh, that wild caught discus, I'll pay $100. And yet, when Oliver Lacanus goes and collects them in the wild, it's always someone from Germany or Japan that's on the wait list willing to spend $3,000 per discus for oh, this one has a slight bit more blue than we could normally get or something like that. And then you come back home to the United States and we're, we 
in my opinion, from what I can see, we're lazy. You know, like we like fish, we love fish, but we want it to be easy. And so on the West Coast, if we have softer water, we typically have apistos and discus and planted tanks. And then in the Midwest, where you have a lot of that uh, harder water, we have a lot of African cichlids and big Central and South American cichlids. And then like down in Florida, um, you would think with all the fish farms and stuff, you'd have everything. But when I was there, I went and collected fish and all that kind of stuff. And I figured it out from collecting fish why all the stores are saltwater. Because in the Costco parking lot, you can go catch freshwater fish. You know, you can literally go, oh, look at this. I'm going to bring it home to my aquarium. And so it's pretty hard to compete with free fish. But the saltwater, you can bring in exotic saltwater stuff from around the world. And that doesn't necessarily wind up in a ditch that someone can catch for free. So that made some sense. And the fish farm, some of them are open to the public. So you can just go and you're like, sweet, I'm buying a neon tetra for 50 cents. It's pretty hard when you bring it into a store and then you want to charge two bucks, you know? So there's a lot of different regional things. And, you know, sometimes it can be spurred by, you just happen to have a bunch of people really dedicated to it and that'll gain some traction. But usually in the U.S. it's water parameters. And I think in the rest of the world, it just comes down to what's popular and, um, you know, like goldfish are very popular cause they're also good luck and that type of thing in other parts. And they're, they've got some, um, you know, some presence here in the United States, but the average person on the street, it says, Oh, goldfish are dirty. That's the reality. So yeah, it's, you know, I could speak on lots of stuff, but that's what I've noticed is that everything, every place I go is different and they do things differently. But the weird part is there's this international language and that is fish appreciation. You don't even have to be able to speak the same language. You can point at something and you can instantly know that they know that, you know, that's awesome. And you're both going, yes, that is awesome. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, another fish keepers do trying to do the same thing. We are keep it alive, enjoy it, maybe breed it, do whatever. And, uh, you know, sometimes like there's, countries like india and stuff where they're having power outages all the time like they have other obstacles of like oh i gotta make sure when the power goes out and it's ridiculously hot how do i keep it alive maybe i don't keep this cool water fish and so there's just different things to worry about around the world yeah that's actually uh, something i hadn't even thought about as far as from the global perspective is that you know we're very blessed with a stable power grid Mm -hmm. um, here in this country and in many of the Western countries as well. But if you're a tropical fish keeper somewhere that doesn't have that security of, of a stable power grid, like we really take that for advantage mm -hmm. or for granted, right? The fact that we can walk into our houses, uh, and turn a flip a switch and get electricity directly to an appliance or yeah. to lights. I mean, that is, you know, that, that is a luxury that other, that other places don't have. So to think, you know, all right, well, when the, uh, when the rolling blackout rolls through here at, uh, two o'clock to, uh, nine o'clock at night, you know, what am, what am I going to do? Is my battery charged for the air pump or whatever the scenario is? I mean, I've right? got customers in, I've got a good customer in Puerto Rico and they, they were out of power for like six months. And you think about power and you like, you can think of ways like they don't have to really worry about heat. It stays warm enough. And he would buy tons of batteries from Amazon to run the battery powered air pumps. But you don't realize how difficult something is until you're in the situation. Like he thought he was prepared. What he didn't realize is there was no good water. So like even mm. water that was in a pond would then be used with bleach to be used with water to like cook and drink and that kind of stuff. And like, so how are you doing water changes on his discus tanks? And he's had all these exotic fish. 
And so you, you think you're ready until you're like, well, I didn't realize there wasn't going to be water coming out of the tap that was suitable to be used and that kind of stuff. And so there's a lot of crazy stuff. And they're asking me, he's like, well, do you think we could take this pond water, bleach it, and we know we can, like, boil it and cook with it, but do you think we could, like, dechlorinate it and use it for the fish? And I'm like, ooh, that's kind of brutal. Like, I think so, yes, but definitely try it. Maybe not out on the discus first and, and that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, you don't even have, a, have light in the in the house or whatever. Like, you know, you got to go by the daylight coming in, and there's just, you know, yeah, lots that, of weird logistics. In that situation, I mean, what's the alternative? Like, you almost, there's probably going to be a point where you have to try that yeah. nasty pond water with chlorine. And he's and asking me for it, advice, you know? and I'm like, I've never been in that dire of a situation. And it comes down to, like, you just got to try your best here, man. Like that's, that's all you can really do. So in your experience, let, let's talk selection, right? So as a, mm-hmm. as a hobbyist, um, I feel like we have a pretty good selection of fish available to us in America, yeah. right? Whether it's through Aquabid, um, or it's through your ro- lo- uh, local fish stores. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like, you know, if there's a fish out there that I want, I can probably get it in this country if I'm yeah. willing to pay. Um, in your experience in these other countries, like I think of China, um, I, I, Again, this could be a very narrow opinion just based off of a few videos that I've seen, but it seems to me like everybody either keeps an arowana, a goldfish, or a flower horn. Mm-hmm. So they they're do- all very popular. Yeah. Um, but I would maybe say that it's like cars, right? So maybe in America you say pretty much everyone's driving like a Honda, a Toyota, or like a Ford, but we could import any car we want. you know. And it's just like if you look at the road, you're going, yeah, it's a majority of those, but then you start looking like all the other fish – or all the other cars that are there. And I think it's the same way in China that, you know, you got to remember that they have an insane amount of population per capita. They have more fish keepers than we do. And uh, they've got fish farms and all this stuff going over there. So in my opinion, I saw way more diversity of fish in China than I do here in the U.S. I mean, I saw stuff I've never seen before, like these rummy nose tetras that have like a metallic scale. So think of like an electric blue ram, how it's got that real shiny blue. Now replace that with silvery white on that thing. It looked way better than any rummy nose we've ever had. So let me frame it this way. Is it more um, natural or line bred in their selection? And I guess when you go to the store initially, I mean, are these things that are readily available in the tanks for them to take home? Um, or is it something where, like you said, you know, we can, we can get money talks. We can get yeah. anything into the country. Um, I guess from a, from a what's in stock kind of option. I would, I would say anything I saw there was easily, you could just buy it. Like you just like, Oh, there's a tank of 500 of them. There's 500. Cause you could just buy them. Um, and still at a bigger selection than what we, what yes, we would have. In yes. Our store. Well, yeah. like when I went to the, the like goldfish market street and these big convention, not conventions, I just want to say like shopping districts really and it so think of it like what what's your best fish store and then maybe you're like yeah it's four thousand square feet and then be like you go to one of those streets in china and go sweet now there's 170 of that store in one row and they're all competing against each other for the best stock the best price the best presentation and i could find almost anything the things that were a little bit harder to get a hold of would have been wild caught stuff and i i actually think it's not that it could you couldn't get it it's that there's so much other cool stuff that you'd be like, why? You know, you'd be like, oh, I saw 35 different black diamond stingrays and then platinum gars and platinum red tails and like all this stuff that is three to $20,000 here in the U.S. And you're like, oh, it's all over the place because one, they're breeding it over there and it's popular and that type of thing. But like there wasn't nearly as many African cichlids, 
But without testing the water, I would wager their water isn't as conducive to it. Like that's what I bet. I'm like, oh, African cichlids. And that always comes down to the consumer. If it's hard for the consumer to keep alive, it's not worth it for the store to offer it. You know, it's like, oh, if they keep killing it, now I'm selling you fish that keep dying. What if I just sell you all these other fish that thrive in your water? Oh, now I'm the guy that has fish that really live. So then on average, you would say then for the things that they have um, readily available, and let's not say the the wild-caught epistogramma that is super, super rare to get. Mm -hmm. But on average, would you say that their fish prices were less expensive than here in the States? Yeah, definitely less. So in my opinion, cheaper, quality was higher, selection was better. Like it just in about every single way was better. Yeah. I mean, I think we freaked out or some people freaked out when you shared it in in your video, but they almost have... Um, like a ready, ready to go section for right? sure. Where the fish Japan has same thing. They're pre-bagged, mm-hmm. right? So none of this consumers are you know coming in and maybe they're going to buy, maybe they're not. Like they are geared up to turn fish inventory. They are pre-bagged, mm-hmm. and I think some people that saw that reacted in a negative manner, like how dare they keep fish in for that sure. small bag? But as you explained. It's only for that, you know, one or two hours before that inventory mm-hmm. turns. And I'm sure there's things that don't sell that quick, but you can't know. I mean, assume you were in Times Square, New York, if you've ever been there and there's like a billion people and every time you breathe in, you're breathing someone else's exhale. That's what's going down at these fish markets, except all those people that are around you or imagine you're at a concert. They're all there to buy fish just like you are. There's that many people. Like it's hard to get in and out of these places and move around. That's how many people are buying fish, and that's the scale you can't wrap your mind around. And then the other part, as an American, it's so different. That's what we have a hard time with. Like, So it seems super weird, like, oh, China, they must be abusing animals. And then you go, well, well, Japan's doing it too, and they don't abuse animals. And then you go, well, okay, let's say they're both abusing animals. It's like, well, they're doing the same thing in the rest of Europe where it's like most people don't realize – Tissue culture plants and even normal plants are now in refrigerators to buy at the fish store. They're not in the planet tanks. Like, they're in blister packs. You open up the refrigerator, you pull it off, and you buy it. Like, that's – and we see it creeping in a little bit in tissue culture and stuff like that and a Petco and a PetSmart. But the grab-and-go kind of lifestyle is much more prevalent outside the U.S. In the U.S., here in a fish store, we expect to walk in, be mentored by someone working there, get the wine and dine experience, and then give the money and then leave. Where in some of these other cultures, time is money, and so we need to get in, get what I need, get back home, and actually utilize the thing. And I think that's just a foreign concept that we're used to. You know, in Japan and China, there's way more vending machines for almost about anything than we have here in the U.S. And again, it's like, well, there's some population densities are crazy high. They need to get in. They need to get out. And it's just a different culture. And when things become the norm, you know, when you travel to China, Japan, Germany, these places, you'll never see, um, what is it, Redbox or whatever, where you can like rent. They don't, they don't do that. They don't do that at all. But you can find almost anything else, you know. So it's just a, a cultural norm and it's different. So I would have to assume, though, Japan, I mean, everything you hear of traveling to Tokyo or to Japan, everything is more expensive. Mm-hmm. It, can the same be said of the fish? Um, I, some fish were expensive, but at the same time, like, so in my store, I sell a quarantined, um, rummy nose Tetra for four bucks in those stores. They were selling for a dollar us, right? And they looked amazing. Again, the quality, like most Japanese stores you went to, you couldn't see a, 
a disease or a piece of allergy anywhere. Like, I don't know if they had giant quarantine facilities or what they were doing, but they would be immaculate. But then there'd be some fish where like, dang, that is crazy expensive compared to the U.S. And so it was, it was just different. And at the same time, you know, like you kind of got to remember China, Japan, Korea, like they're all closer. A lot of these companies that are, or not companies, a lot of these countries that are really producing fish, it's less freight to get them there. You know, all as opposed to getting them all the way to the U.S. And so, like, especially if you're in the Midwest, a lot of times the fish have to land maybe at LAX, and, and then they have to get shipped to the Midwest, and then it might be a five-hour drive to get to that airport and then get them back to the fish store. That's way more travel time than maybe, oh, it was only a 12-hour flight for, you know, to go from here to here. So. Yeah, talking with Eric Martins from uh, Disco Bee on the subject of, um, importing and, and just dealing with breeders um, in Asian countries, mm-hmm. you know, he basically framed it that they would much rather deal with their neighboring Asian countries who are willing to pay higher prices because mm-hmm. those particular shrimp are in higher demand there than deal with Americans who want to negotiate. Mm-hmm. And then you have to ship it all the way across the Pacific Ocean. Like they right. would just much rather deal with those Asian countries uh, that are close to them or closer proximity. Yeah. I mean, there's things like Japan's known to have the best goldfish. China makes goldfish, but Japan's known to have the best. And what we actually know is that you can get the same Japanese goldfish, but you get them from uh, Korea because you can ride, you can basically take a, a overnight ferry between the two. And it's like, oh, so they go over there, they grab all these high end strains, they bring them home, and they breed them. And then it's just like being in Tokyo is like being in London or New York. It's very expensive. And then it's like, oh, some of these other countries, it's much cheaper and labor's cheaper, and so you're getting the same quality but a cheaper rate. And so. Yeah, I would much rather pass, you know, like let's say you bred the same goldfish and you brought it over to Japan and you get a higher dollar than, oh, getting it to the U.S. and then, oh, half of them are dying, claims are being made. And it's it, it might be, and I don't know this to be uh, a fact, but it could be harder like with customs to get it into the U.S. and maybe a different country. So, so I guess let's kind of take those same questions and apply it to Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, how does Germany compare in terms of their selection, uh, readily available selection, as well as the prices of their fish in their stores? So I didn't get to visit nearly as many stores in Germany, um, but I get the sense that a lot of stuff is being bred locally. Like because people are specializing, when people specialize, they tend to get to the point where they can breed stuff. So the store I went to, like the gentleman that owned it, had written several books on even just shrimp disease and all that kind of stuff, and he really loved shrimp. But then they had a bunch of other like guppies and angels and just the normal stuff a store would have. But it was like a smaller store in the middle of a neighborhood and it was in their basement, but legit set up like a store. So it'd be like, go to your friend's house that has a basement. When you get down there, it literally looks like a retail store. And, you know, Joel and I were like, this is a little bit weird. And the guy was showing us around like, this is, this is how they are. Like that's, you know, this is how it's done. And no one else thinks it's weird. And that's just the way it is. And uh, without visiting more and more and more stores, I can't know. But I know in general, they get a lot of rare stuff because people are willing to pay the money. In fact, one of the people that was driving us around, uh, he runs a business where all he does is source ridiculously rare stuff for clients. And that's his business. Like, it's like, oh, you're willing to, you know, untold amount of money to, to get this. I will source this for you. And he might have to make a trip to go figure out how he's going to get it and that type of stuff. And that's his business that's what he does and so like that in my opinion that doesn't really exist in the u.s like i don't know and people go well i know a guy that gets rare stuff and it's like well yeah but do you know someone that bringing in the cross river puffer we haven't seen one in the united states in like 30 years so it's like that's pretty rare and he has to like figure out can it be gotten and then like oh it's in a war zone 
do we know someone that can go into this war zone and get it back out? And then you have to pay like every step of the way and still get it back to like, sweet, this puffer is only three grand. Like it almost sounds like you're describing the Han Solo of Germany for tropical fish. Yeah. Like he's just this awesome smuggler who's well, and he, not illegal. Yeah, he's, he's doing everything legally, legal, but yeah. But he's, he, yeah, he's going above and beyond. There's a lot of fish these. stuck in places. It's perfectly legal to, to bring them out. It's just you can't get there and back without getting killed. Yeah, the uh, the Congo. I mean, if anybody is an un, if you are into the tropical tropical fish hobby and you're not aware of kind of the strife and the, and what's going on in that area, um, there's some really good videos and, and just some really good articles that will you know give you a condensed history of that area mm-hmm. um, so that you understand why I showed anti puffer, uh, which I'm now the proud owner of. You know, they they do fetch a pretty pretty decent price. Uh, they're an amazing yep. fish. But it's because they're coming from an area that, you know, geographically may not be as far as other places, but it's just a, a war-torn, mm-hmm. um, very, very chaotic area. So I would encourage everybody to just take a look and um, you know, see the history of the Congo as an example. Yeah. What about fish clubs? So did you get any exposure to, like, what a fish club in China, Japan, Germany, um, how that may contrast to us here in the, in the States? Not so much in... Um, in other countries. I did get a little bit of it in... Germany, and the experience I got was very, like, niche groups. So, like, the one that we got invited to, we ended up not going, but they pretty much only have catfish talks because it's like they're into catfish, you know. But the other thing to remember is that, like, it sounds super extravagant when you're like, oh, I'm going from Germany to this other country, and then you realize it's just like driving one state over in the United States. So it seems like crazy, but each country will have – maybe a couple, two or three clubs. And you're like, oh, that's like one state having two or three clubs. So they're a lot more local. And so they can be a little bit more um, specialized. And again, maybe it's that German, we specialize in stuff. So, oh yeah, our clubs specialize in stuff maybe. Like maybe that's how it works. I don't don't know because I haven't attended enough of them, but definitely like in the United States, it's way different. Like we only have you know, I think we have about two and a half clubs here in our state. We have like a saltwater club. We have our Greater Seattle Aquarium Society. And then we have a new club trying to start up. But then you go to somewhere like Ohio and you're like, wait, you have 17 clubs? You know, or you go to Michigan and they're like, yeah, well, you know, we go to about eight different meetings a month. And they're like, and they're like yeah, you know, the farthest one's about an hour and a half away. And, you know, a lot of these Midwest states because they're so isolated and it might be really snowy and it's not optimal or it might be really hot, they really get into aquariums and they just, there's tons and tons and tons of clubs. And so you can actually hit a circuit where you're like, I could, I could speak at a club. I could speak at a club every night for like a week straight and not even leave the state. Yeah. It's funny that you, you know, bring up the Midwest and just how, how much more into the, uh, the fish clubs they are or fish in general than mm-hmm. us. Um, in that one of our kind of local uh, products that we're very proud of is Lawrence Kent, mm-hmm. but we kind of stole him from the Midwest. Yeah. So he's, yeah. He, you know, he's not, and I say we, you know, granted I'm a transplant to this area yeah, from yeah. California, but you now West Coast boy nonetheless. Um, yeah. So, I mean, he's one of kind of our, our claims to fame in the club is that we have Lawrence Kent, but he's actually from Missouri, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, same club as Gary Lang. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's like a powerhouse club, right? Like it's, it's funny to talk about fish clubs in terms of like a powerhouse club. Uh, but yeah, that, that, I think that would definitely be, uh, be one of them. I think they have an advantage. They've got basements. They've got, you know, part of the reason why I think some of the clubs are so strong is that their local fish stores are so weak because they're so spread out and population isn't quite as dense in a lot of those places. It doesn't necessarily justify having a fish store there. So these meetings are almost like going, so if you had, 
you know, a club you could go to every weekend. That's like going to visit your local fish store every weekend, except it's like visiting a different fish store. And the quality might be higher because they're all locally bred fish and you've got all these things. But then you also get the negatives of if your only experience is these clubs, you're at the mercy of what they're into. And so a lot of the Midwest, there's like, there's not a plant to be found, you know, because it's like, oh, there's no stores really bringing it in. And these people are breeding these things that aren't necessarily conducive to plants. And so it can, a lot of people have to order the plants in. Let's talk about for the, the hobbyist, um, the government controls over medicines, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, that's simple yeah, like, yep. Uh, well, like general cure, you can't get that in the EU, right? Like mm-hmm. as a home yeah. hobbyist, I can't get general cure. I yeah. think is Canada the same way with some of the yes. meds? Okay. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, so, I mean, from your perspective, like what, how do you feel about that? Right. As, as a home hobbyist, you know, there's some of these simple medicines that again, something that we're potentially taking for granted, they don't have access to. So right. are there, do they have access to alternatives that are, they do. yeah. They, okay. So like, in the UK, they have a lot of rad medicines that we don't have access to because they're illegal here. So they've got medicines like the one that I would really love to bring over to the United States is um, it specifically treats ick on clown loaches. Like so, the medication's that dialed in. It does really well, and clowns, clown loaches are notorious for getting ick, especially when they come into a store and that kind of stuff. So and it works really well. And then they also have another medication pretty much just for loaches that will um, get rid of like skinny loach disease. We don't really have a cure. We try with camelinus or not with camelinus with levamisole or fembendazole here, but it's not nearly as good as that medicine we can't really get. And so there are some advantages in that other meds do exist and different things are regulated or aren't regulated depending on where you go to. But, you know, really there needs to be people trying meds and figuring out what works in those countries really. Cause like I've got a trio of meds like general cure erythromycin and ICX I really love in the United States, but if I had access to all those meds, maybe it's completely different and it works better. You know, like you need people to test it and then want to help the hobby. And I always tell people like the best medicine, like if you could only ever pick one medicine to ever have access to it's salt. Salt can treat fungal, it can treat ick, it can treat bacterial. Like you can do a lot of amazing things with salt and everyone kind of poo-poos it and that kind of thing. It's But it, it's learning what level of salt with what fish treats what illness. If you could master that, you can treat almost anything you'll ever run into, barring a few different parasites and worms and things like that with salt alone. But the problem is, you know, you, you mentioned one thing and you go, oh, yeah, well, this amount of salt for this tetra. And then someone tries it with a different tetra and it kills it. You know, and it's like, well, not every was it an African tetra or was it one from the Amazon? Like those are very, very different. But in the home hobbyist mind, a tetra is a tetra. So, a rasbora is a rasbora. So it sounds like any listeners out there that are dying to etch their name in the annals of tropical mm-hmm. fish keeping stardom. Yeah. You need to put together the chart of salt treating yeah. what in what species share that with the mass fish keeping public and you will forever be loved and cherished we were using hobby. a lot of salt before we developed our med trio but there would be things we'd run into where like dwarf anchor catfish a 10 gallon tank with like a pinch of salt they would die in like 20 minutes like just a pinch of salt they were so sensitive to it and for like no reason you put like fish that come from the same area and they would do fine it way higher concentrations so it was something that we could never really share through the youtube channel because there'd be enough things like who knew it was going to kill that in 20 minutes like we we don't want to be known for killing fish it is 
crazy effective for probably 90% of fish out there. But then there's that 10% of the unknown. And as a, like a legal entity, it's like, we don't want to get a bad reputation. Yeah. Like you're killing X and, and Y all the time. And it doesn't really play nice with plants. So you yeah. got to have a quarantine tank. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe there's a crowdsourcing opportunity for mm-hmm. people all across the country or all across the world to, you know, don't, don't just willy nilly experiment, but, um, you know, document observations somebody out there start putting this together right so maybe one day we'll have an app where you say this is the fish i have this is my tank this is what's going on and maybe at the end of the day it'll spit out an amount of salt for you to use Mm -hmm. all your troubles maybe they go away yeah i mean it's it's fish farms have used it for a very long time and it's known that's why a lot of fish get bred in brackish water and then they brought over to freshwater because the brackish fights off so much stuff and there's so few parasites in brackish water. So it's it's known to work and we use it in humans all the time. Like if if anyone's ever got a piercing or something like that, they're like, oh yeah, use saline water and that kind of stuff. Like we know it works as antibacterial and antifungal, but it's all about how much good are we getting from the salt versus how much harm are we causing and what levels. And we also need, like not only do we need to know like, okay, it's this much salt gets rid of ick on this platy, Let's say it's a tablespoon per gallon, but what if half a tablespoon got it? Because then now we know, oh, the cardinal tetras and the platys will both live at half a tablespoon. So it actually takes a ridiculous amount of work, but someone to do that would revolutionize the hobby. I would I would like to think that uh, fish collectors out there or, or ichthyologists that are naming fish uh, would then give you a species uh, to yeah. have your name just be forever remembered. Like the Randy Reed Eye Rainbow Fish would just be awesome. I feel and like it'd have Gary, to be a brackish water can, fish. <laughs> brackish, you know, that's a good point. But yeah. who keeps brackish water Well, no fish, one does. Though. That's yeah. why it's kind of an oxymoron. Like, yeah, I've got a fish that no one will ever keep named after me. Oh, uh, but at least it's named after me, yeah. though. All right, Corey. So to wrap this up, I, I want to ask you kind of one more question. Sure. Um, where do you see the hobby evolving over the next decade in the United States? In the United States, um, where do I think it'll go? So obviously, I spend a lot of time in retailer talks and that kind of thing, in the industry talks. And what we know is the largest buyer now is actually the youth. So basically, people under 20 years old, their spending power is now greater than basically elderly white people in, you know, in the fish hobby in the United States globe or like not industry specific, oh, but okay, overall, okay. like basically there is enough youth. We've had enough kids like the baby boomers had enough kids that them spending $20 at a time now outweighs the baby boomer spending money where the baby boomer might go sweet. I'm going to buy that 200 gallon aquarium. I'm going to spend three grand setting this up. But for every one of them, there's 400 people spending 20 bucks at a time, and that's $1,000 more, right? So we, we know as an industry, we need to target these $20 purchases. So in general, the youth live in smaller places. They typically don't own a home. They rent a place, and they move a lot. And because they're younger and the way that work is now, we typically change careers every couple of years. And so they're moving, and so we need to sell them nanotanks and – uh, that needs to be cheaper, and that we need to gateway them into the hobby. And yes, maybe some of them progress to be that whale of a customer, but the money is now being made on let's sell $100 kits and let's sell millions of them as opposed to bigger tanks. And so stores need to transition knowing that. They need to know that the best place you could probably be advertising right now is Snapchat, wherever that under 20 demographic is, which is not YouTube. That's not where I'm at. It's not Facebook. It's actually Instagram and Snapchat. And we know if those were the marketing dollars are, one, as manufacturers 
like wake up to this and know this, they're going to start changing the products they offer and then stores will start changing. And so I see it going towards smaller aquariums, not necessarily only nano, but let's say the average, like I always thought when I built my store, the average big aquarium for a family would be a 55 gallon. People would say like, oh yeah, oh yeah, my friend Mary, they have a huge aquarium and you'd get there and be like, yeah, it's a 55 gallon. I think that's now going to become like the 29 gallon. I think the 29 is going to be like, whoa, that's a big aquarium. And then people have lots of like 15 and 20 gallons. And we see this in the industry where we have the Fluval Flexus coming out. We have all these tanks between 10 and 20 gallons coming out in different shapes and sizes because it's a cheaper price point. It's something you can drain and kind of pick up and carry to the next house. It kind of fits in the studio apartment or the, you know, the office, you know, that type of thing. And so I think fish that fit inside these aquariums is where the hobby's going. It's, you know, a lot of people want to say, oh, well, like it's it's okay. Let me tell a story. It's funny to sit at a retailer talk this year, and people in the industry are saying, "So you know, I think plants and shrimp are the next big thing." And if you're in the hobby, you're going, "Yeah, that was the next big thing ten years ago." Like, but the problem is these big manufacturers and all this. That's how far behind they are. So that's why I say when they realize that this is happening, that's when the change happens. So. Um, I don't necessarily think it's going to be planted tanks and shrimp tanks. Like, they're popular, yep. But I think it's that size of tank, and so what fish fits in there. So I think maybe we're going to see things like Oscars and Jack Dempsey's phase out a little more and more community fish or at least shell-dwelling cichlids and other um, maybe dwarf tangenicans and all that kind of stuff. Stuff that can, you know, I based my store when I opened it. The reason it was community was because I wanted to say no the least amount of time. So... If you, if I have a guppy, no matter what tank size you say, I basically can say yes. I've got a two and a half gallon. Could I keep a guppy? Technically, yes. But in the same tank, let's say my sales tank, I've got an Oscar sitting there. I'd have to say no all the way from two and a half, basically maybe in a 40 breeder till 55 and up. So I'm saying no a lot of the time. And I think smart retailers are realizing that. Let your staff say yes, as opposed to uh, saying no all the time because the so the person that wants an Oscar you say no to they also are magically attracted to the Jack Dempsey and the silver dollars and all these other big things and so you end up having an employee that's really good at saying no where if you filled your store and they fall in love with something you'd say yes with everything that's a money-making scenario and I think the hobby is going that direction and it has to be in that direction if a retail store wants to stay in business I think the footprint is going to have to shrink on stores. We're watching this happen with PetSmarts and Petco's where they basically want a satellite store that's about a 1,000 square feet. We can get you everything overnight. It'll land there, come pick it up tomorrow, as opposed to 20,000 square feet. We have a bunch of people on the floor, and we have everything in stock. Uh, as it gets more expensive to move stuff around, they're realizing that cost-benefit maybe is not worth it. And they don't have enough staff. How many times have we been in a chain store where it's like, well, I'm the weasel guy. I don't really know fish, but I could catch that for you. And so it's hard to staff. And I think all those factors are going to push us towards smaller aquariums and, um, you know, I think more aquariums. When I polled my customers um, about two and a half years ago, and this was my retail store, not necessarily YouTube. So it was my retail store. Uh, the average person owned five or more aquariums. They weren't necessarily big aquariums, but five or more. That might be bettables. It might be you know five gallons of bettas, but five or more. And I think that's a stark difference from where we were, where people would own one or two much larger aquariums. And 
in the trends, we're seeing that large aquariums just don't sell nearly as easily as small aquariums do. And uh, as those dollars shift, retailers will respond. And when a retailer responds, they always end up bringing stuff that can fit that. Like it doesn't make sense to go, yeah, we're moving 100 Fluval Spec 5s a month. Let's keep re-upping on the Oscar selection. Like those two don't go together. So it eventually, you know, where the money goes, retailers have to go. And that's where the hobby ends up going because when you – get a new person into the hobby and they walk into a fish store and no Oscars and Jack Dempsey's are even available. They don't really know they want them. So naturally there's going to be more people keeping what's offered. And as chain stores and stuff like that change their planogram as they have it, uh, we'll see the hobby change. That, that's such a bittersweet um, thought on the direction. I, I agree with you. Um, but as the listeners of the show know that I've had Oscars before, I love Oscars. Mm-hmm. I, I want to have them again one day, but at the same time, I mean, when you have an Oscar tank, um, I, I'm sorry, it's going to be my opinion, but they won't be as aesthetically pleasing as a smaller tank that um, has some selection of plants with some nano fish in it. I think that there is a visual aesthetic mm-hmm. to a setup tank that's a little bit smaller with those fish than your you know 75 gallon, 100 gallon tank with Oscars and some fake plants floating at the top because the Oscar keeps pulling them out and redecorating his tank. Uh, again, I say that with, with, with bittersweetness in my heart. I love the Oscar fish, uh, but Corey, I, I definitely think that you're spot on. And I think we see those trends in the Facebook groups, mm-hmm. um, with the YouTube videos and, you know, those, those smaller tanks, they're, they're still pretty cool. And I know that there's a couple people at work. Um, actually one of them was the gal, uh, the spheres ambassador yeah. on our tour. Yeah. Uh, I've already emailed her and she's, she knew a whole lot about that, uh, 600 gallon paludarium about yeah. what was actually in that, uh, in that tank. And so when we asked her, Oh, well, what kind of fish do you have? And she's like, Oh, I don't have a tank. Yeah. I'm like you can't, you can't stand here all day long, admiring these fish, talking about them to people, seeing the reactions on people's face and not having a fish tank at you at, her, at your house. So I've emailed her. I, I now have an outreach. Um, mm-hmm. It is my goal to get a fish tank. I'll be interested um, to hear what size. I've, I've originally pitched a 10 gallon tour. I yeah. told her, you know, the Petco, you can either go kind of the pre, um, the, the pre like flu vol packages, yeah. or you can do something like a 10, a 10 gallon on the dollar a gallon sale. Here's some filter heater options for you. Um, you know, I, I think she's kind of the standard millennial. She's going to be living in a smaller, right. So space. I was going to say to interview oh. you, like, why was that the pitch then? Like, oh, cause it made sense. Right. And that's where that industry is yeah. going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Mm hmm. So, Corey, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for coming on the Aquarius Podcast. Before we jump off, though, um, if people are like, hey, man, I've never heard of this guy before, but I like what he has to say, uh, why don't you go ahead and say how people can get a hold of you? And if they want to uh, you know, peruse your selection of offerings yeah. online, why don't you go ahead and give us that rundown? So, yeah, we have a website, online e-commerce. We sell live plants, uh, snails, lots of dry goods, that kind of stuff. And most of the things have videos to go with it. And that's aquariumcoop.com. And you can also look us up at Aquarium Co-op on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're pretty much everywhere. If you were to type in Aquarium Coop or anything even close to it, it'll start driving you towards there because we're lucky enough to have a big social media presence. And from there, we can start helping you. Uh, We have basically dedicated employees that are answering emails and helping with that. Getting my one-on-one time has gotten a little bit difficult these days, but we do do a live stream um, and it would be, it would sound very similar to what we just did here. And instead of Randy asking me the questions, it's the viewers, uh, type in a question and I answer it the best I can. What have I noticed? And, uh, you can join, you know, basically a thousand other people firing questions at me. And we do that every Sunday at 
5 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the YouTube channel, unless I'm in a different country, in which case I can't do it. But we try to uphold that as much as we can. And uh, you can always leave comments on the videos. We try and uh, answer as much as we can. We can't get to everything. But, you know, if you read through there or you ask questions, other people will help you. And uh, there's also the Aquarium Group Support on Facebook, which is um, a group I made to be basically advertising free. And, like, the rules are to promote the hobby, don't be mean to each other, and anything that breaks that, we just ban you. And, and so if you've ever been to a Facebook group before, you can be like, oh, you've got this fish in the wrong size tank. You know, Make sure we put their head on a pike. And this group, that won't happen. We will only respond to questions that you actually have, not chastise you. And if we see that going on, we'll remedy that. And the goal is you can come in a safe space, ask your question, and not be worried that you're going to be a noob that doesn't know anything because everyone starts there, but we feel there's not a place where everyone can ask those questions nowadays without running into too much opposition. We don't want to see people leave the hobby because the people on Facebook were mean. We want to you know, help reinforce you're super into it. You might have too many fish in your 10-gallon, but you're really into it, and you just didn't know that that African cichlid was going to eat that tetra. But now that you saw it happen, you ask us why. Maybe we explain it. And then you learn, and, and the goal is not to tell you, you need a 55-gallon tank. The goal with this group is that by the time we've explained what's going on, you'll tell us, hey, I need to buy a 55-gallon tank. You know, it's a seems like the same answer, but it comes from a different way. We educate you, and hopefully you will learn what you need to do as opposed to just telling you what to do. Yeah, and I think, Corey, that's just perfectly in line with just grow the hobby. Mm -hmm. Grow the hobby. Um, we want to get people into this hobby. We want people to enjoy the hobby uh, and experience this this incredible hobby that we have and that yeah. is you know keeping tropical fish um, and i think Corey, I, I think that you are an embodiment of that spirit um, i think that's what drives your retail success i think it's what's driven your youtube success and i think that's what's going to continue to set you apart um, from others in this hobby is that it is a genuine passion for the fish for other fish keepers uh, and it's not one to tear people down it's one to bring people together and yeah. build it up and just have a good time being in the fish fam and being fish nerds so Corey, yep. thank you again so much for uh, being on the aquarius podcast hey i appreciate it buddy hope to be on again sometime absolutely thank you again for listening to the aquarius podcast as always get involved in your local fish club help grow this wonderful hobby and have fun with other fish nerds